You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I now read with you from the prophecy of Daniel. I will read the second chapter in its entirety. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. Namely, if you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologers. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officers, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, 
The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to, to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Ariah, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Ariach took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation, and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, And there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. 
After you, another kingdom will, will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and uh, paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think? Is it legitimate to say it was a tiny chip off of that stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand that broke in pieces the twin towers of the World Trade Center some years ago. Or it was a tiny chip from that same stone that brought down the space shuttle Columbia. Or it was a chip from that stone that powered the tsunami that wreaked havoc and destruction in Asia. How do we read history? And how do we understand the events that stir and that disturb the world wherein we live? You may at one time or another have seen the rows upon rows of crosses that mark the graves of the soldiers, Canadian and American, who lost their lives on the battlefields of Europe. 
as they sought to stop an evil empire from gaining control over the hearts and lives of countless millions of people. And then you wonder, right? You wonder, was their goal achieved? Oh yes, Hitler's evil empire was stopped then dead in its track. The Third Reich could not hold sway. It went down to ignominious defeat. But peace, peace on earth, peace as defined and desired by mankind, was such peace on earth achieved then. Ah, you know it. The killing fields have only been multiplied and the suffering continues unabated to this very day. Moreover, there is the ever-present terror of the terrorists. And there are again evil empires controlled by maniacs which disturb the peace as never before. And the question, what must be done plagues the leaders of many a nation. Ah, yes, they ponder the question as we wonder, what can be done? Who is willing to do? Who is willing to rise to the occasion? While others protest that there is no occasion to rise to. And then there is that all-important question. Who acknowledges that in and through it all, it is the Lord God, the Almighty, who is sovereignly moving on, establishing His kingdom? Oh yes, you can sense it. There is great fear. People are afraid. They are troubled. They are terrified. They sense it, peace, genuine peace on earth. It simply is not. Why is that? What explains that? We read the word of the Lord from the prophecy of Daniel. In the second chapter of this prophecy, we are introduced to a mighty king who is in great distress. He is worried sick. He can't sleep anymore. In the wee early hours of the morning, he commands the magicians and the enchanters, the sorcerers and the astrologers to come before him. Ah, they are to come at once, for the matter is very urgent. But why? What has happened? Why is the mighty king of Babylon today's Iraq so mightily upset? Has an enemy invaded his domain? But surely his military might could prevail against any and all enemies. Or, or are his subjects perhaps staging an uprising? But surely his police were capable of securing the state. No, it is neither the one nor the other. Rather, his majesty the king has dreamed a dream. And that dream, ah, that dream has robbed him of his peace. 
This man who had subdued hundreds of thousands of people. This man was the sole ruler of the mighty Babylonian Empire. This man who feared not man nor armies of men. This man was deathly afraid. But why? Oh yes, he has dreamed a dream. But why should that disturb him so mightily? What is there about that dream that could be so very upsetting? I invite you to listen with me to the word of the Lord which tells us how the Lord God uses a king, Nebuchadnezzar, to make known his will. Our text tells us of kingdoms and the kingdom. There are three thoughts. The wisdom of the world exposed. The wisdom of the Lord revealed, and the kingdom of the Lord ever victorious. I said a moment ago that Nebuchadnezzar was very much upset, apparently because of a dream. And so he was. But that's not the whole story. Oh yes, the first couple of verses of chapter 2 do say that Nebuchadnezzar's spirit was troubled and that his sleep left him because of the dream he had dreamed. But verse 29 lays bare the root of the matter. Listen to what Daniel tells the king. To you, O king, he says, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be hereafter. You hear it. Nebuchadnezzar had been thinking as he lay upon his bed. That may have happened to you on occasion. Thinking about the future. And it worried him. He was scared stiff. What would the future bring? What would become of his kingdom, the mighty Babylonian Empire? Ah, you see, we may sing as we confess, I know not what the future holds, but I know, I know who holds the future. It's a secret known only to him. And see, that gives us peace. A sense of well-being. But Nebuchadnezzar, as indeed all this worldly-minded rulers, Nebuchadnezzar had no such confession, and therefore no such peace. As he lay there upon his bed with anxious, fear-filled thoughts racing through his mind, the king had finally, exhaustedly fallen asleep. But even then, he found no rest for his weary soul. As he slept, he dreamed. And his dream 
See, it was a revelation from the Lord God. The Lord God would give the king of Babylon a glimpse of the transiency of his power and glory. See, the kingdom of Babylon and its glory would soon fade and die like a flower of the field. Think of Psalm 103. Nothing would remain of it. Nebuchadnezzar, on his bed, in the night, had somehow sensed something of that. And, ah, then he could not sleep anymore. His worries, his fears, his anxieties will not allow him to sleep anymore. But what to do? To whom could he turn for help? Now that the Lord God Almighty was already busy removing the very foundations of his kingdom. As you think about that, then think not only of Nebuchadnezzar, but think also of the Napoleons and the Hitlers and the wheeler dealers at the United Nations today. For they did and they do what Nebuchadnezzar long before them had done. I see Nebuchadnezzar did not turn to the Lord. Rather, he turned to man. Human wisdom must keep the sinking ship of state afloat. Human wisdom is pitted against divine sovereignty, divine providence. When dangers threaten, it is the men of much learning and skill. The great manipulators who are called together now as then. And they are the ones who are thanked and praised or blamed and castigated with nary a thought of the Lord and his providential care for his people. And a leader, a leader who does speak of the Lord and his providence is vilified by the media, which presents itself as the modern day enchanters and magicians, the sorcerers and the astrologers just as it happened in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. The enchanters and magicians, the sorcerers and astrologers were summoned to the palace. But no Daniel or his three friends. What, after all, what would they know of the affairs of state? Those worshippers of the God of Israel, those fanatics who would not defile themselves with the king's food. Remember chapter 1. What could a word from the Lord, the opening of his word for life, what could that possibly contribute to an alleviation of the king's anxieties? No, Daniel, the church, the word of the Lord, it is not wanted. Ah, but all the wise men 
called before the king were helpless. And they knew it. Hear them plead with the king that he tell them his dream that they may then give him its interpretation. But the king refuses. You, he says, you tell me the dream and then you give me its interpretation. Why, after all, why would the gods provide the interpretation but not the dream itself? Sounds logical enough, doesn't it? Ah, but by that logic, with that logic, the king exposed the bankruptcy of his own counselors. They were forced to confess none. None can show it to the king except the, 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 the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Right there you see how fragile, how utterly without any certainty or security the wisdom of man is. A dream, nothing more than a dream, was needed to shake the foundations of the kingdom of Babylon to their very core. While the palace was in an uproar, the king in his anger and utter frustration, you can be sure, had given command that all of the wise men be destroyed. After all, what was the good of them? They were surely not trustworthy. Perhaps they were traitors, right? Ah, but so it is that the Lord, through Nebuchadnezzar, exposes the utter foolishness of leaning on the wisdom of man. Daniel and his three friends, though not invited to the palace, were nevertheless included in the king's edict. Ariach, the captain of the guard, came to the house of Daniel also to arrest him and to kill him and his three friends. But Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, with wisdom and tact. He went in and besought the king to appoint him a time that he might show to the king the interpretation. With that, we come to the second phase of the story and the second point of the sermon, the wisdom of the Lord revealed. See, the Lord had shown to Nebuchadnezzar both that the wise of this world are foolish and that the wisdom of this world is vanity. Nothing more than a striving after wind. He will now also make known to Nebuchadnezzar that it is the wisdom of the Lord revealed through his servant Daniel. It is the wisdom of the Lord that directs the affairs of man. Daniel has an audience with the king. 
He tells the king pointedly that neither wise men nor enchanters nor magicians nor astrologers can show the king what he demanded. But, ah, but there is a God in heaven, says Daniel. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he, he it is who has made known to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. Daniel then reminds the king of the thoughts he had that had come to his mind as he lay upon his bed. How he had worried about the future. How frantic, how desperate he had become. Then Daniel underscores once more that it is the Lord God, the God who reveals secrets, who had spoken to the king. And he explains to the king how it is possible that he, Daniel, knows the dream and its interpretation. When you read this passage carefully, you can't help but notice that three times, three times, the soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, resounds through the palace. Everything, O king, also your splendor and your majesty, it must and it will and it shall serve the purposes, ah yes, the glory of the Lord God. Oh, people forget that all the time. Then they heap praise or blame upon man and they fail or they refuse to see that people Ah, yes, especially people of name are but instruments, tools of the Lord through whom he accomplishes his sovereign will. Well, what had the Lord revealed? Daniel tells the king that he, in his dream, had seen an image its head of gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Daniel says, moreover, that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is the head of gold. And he goes on to say that after him other kingdoms will rise, each one inferior to the one preceding it. However, Nothing further is said here about the identity of those kingdoms to come. But, but Daniel does say something about that image as a whole. And by so doing, he tells us something about what will characterize each of the kingdoms that shall arise. You see, aside from the fact that the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was great and mighty, two things are mentioned which characterize the image as a whole. Its brightness was exceedingly great and its appearance was terribly frightening. You understand? Those are the two things that characterize the kingdoms of this world. 
Those are the two things that characterize the might and the power of this earth. Those are the two things that characterize all developments that are of this earth. Developments not born of faith. There is something about them that is dazzling. You stand in awe. And there is something about them that is frightening. You tremble at the very thought. That, you see, was true of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom also. The glory of his kingdom was magnificent, while its terror was frightening. And so it has been repeated over and again throughout the history of the world. To this very day, mighty empires have come and gone. Fantastic achievements have been accomplished in the areas of science and technology. Again and again, people have stood utterly amazed. Think of nuclear power. While at the same time, they trembled in fear. Think of the weapons of mass destruction. Because always, always man's achievements were and are accompanied by dark and foreboding forces. Powers no one knew or knows how to control or to direct. See, they're the reason for the unease people experience today also. Even as they celebrate man's accomplishments, they see the brightness of all that has been achieved, and they glory in it. They rejoice because of it. But, ah, but at the same time, they sense that there are powers at work, awesome powers, frighteningly destructive powers, powers which no one is able to harness, let alone understand. The killing fields, you see, they are there in many forms all over the world today. No society, however great and glorious, no society has been able to escape them. After all, there was not only a Dachau, there is also a New York City and a Bali. There is Afghanistan and Pakistan and the Middle East and Baghdad and North Korea. See, the kingdoms that are of this world, the cultural achievements that are not born of faith, no matter how great their splendor, they are ultimately of a dreadful appearance. Nebuchadnezzar saw it. He saw the exceeding brightness and the terrifying dreadfulness of the image. And his spirit was troubled. And so I come to the last thought. The victory of the kingdom of the Lord. You see, 
Nebuchadnezzar saw more than only that image of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And it is very well possible that what he saw more than that caused his spirit to be frightened even more than the sight of the image itself. As you looked, says Daniel to the king, a stone was cut out by no human hand. Ah yes, Nebuchadnezzar had seen that that stone, cut by no human hand, smote the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them to pieces. Verse 34. As a matter of fact, he had seen that the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. Verse 35. Ah, is it any wonder that a man, be he a mighty king, is it any wonder that a man, seeing such a thing, would be utterly terrified? Think of it. That whole image, from the gold head to the feet of iron and clay, the whole thing was reduced the chaff, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. Verse 35. But the stone, that little stone, that had been cut out in such an inconspicuous way that no one had so much as seen a hand cutting it, That stone that had struck the image, ah, it became a great mountain. And it filled the whole earth. Is it any wonder that Nebuchadnezzar, seeing that, trembled at the sight? That stone, oh, you know it. That stone, it is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It is the kingdom which the Lord God Almighty establishes on this earth. The kingdom that shall never be destroyed. The kingdom that shall break in pieces and blow away all the kingdoms of this earth. The kingdom that shall stand forever. At this point it is important to underscore that the kingdom of heaven, though indeed a spiritual reality, is very much a kingdom like the kingdoms of this earth. What I mean is this. Suppose, suppose you could have asked a citizen of Babylon in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, what, pray tell, What is the kingdom of Babylon? See, then such a person would not only have spoken of a geographically defined area, but he would have spoken also of Babylon's military might, about its government and schools, about its buildings and architecture, about its societal life and its way of life. See, anyone, 
Anyone thinking about the kingdom of Babylon thought of all that Babylon was, all that Babylon stood for, its total way of life. Well now, just so it is with the kingdom which the Lord God Almighty establishes on this earth. It encompasses all of life. It too is characterized by a recognizable way of life. See, the kingdom of the Lord, it is in this world. It is a kingdom with its own unique understanding of an approach to politics and labor, to education and industry, to law and order and worship. An approach that is, that must be in complete harmony with the very nature of that kingdom. See, Babylon's institutions and organizations were thoroughly secular. For that was the nature, that was the heartbeat of the kingdom of Babylon. All who belonged to that kingdom were brought up in and were caught up by that total way of life, precisely as that is true of every secular society today. A half-hearted commitment could not and will not be tolerated, because that would mean the eventual breakdown of that secular, anti-God kingdom. The media today knows that well. That's what motivates it to do its work with cunning and with deception. Never forget it. When you listen to the news, you are listening to anti-God powers seeking to destroy the kingdom of the Lord. And now think of that kingdom of the Lord. Uh, it is not of this world. That is, it does not draw its power and its vision, its definition of goals and its purposes from this world. But, but it is a kingdom in this world. And it is being established. And it cannot and it will not tolerate half-hearted commitment. Never forget it. And, ah yes, and it shall destroy, it will consume the kingdoms of this earth. The question is, have you seen that kingdom? Have you sensed and seen its all-consuming power? Ah, you see, the stone that was cut out by no human hand is growing and gaining in momentum ever since the day John the Baptizer shouted in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Christ our King 
is going forth, conquering and to conquer. Have you seen it? Ah, we are so often blinded, blinded by the dazzling brightness of the kingdoms of this world. But then, ah yes, then we get caught up also in the paralyzing awesomeness of their terrifying appearance. And then we tremble, as did Nebuchadnezzar, because then we know, as he did, no matter how great the glory of this present time may be, it cannot and it will not remain. But, but those who have their hope set on Christ's kingdom, they shall not be put to shame. Their hope shall come to fruition. They know it for sure. Their Savior and Lord shall reign forever. His kingdom shall have no end. Praise the Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.